Would you pray with me? Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Following the rules. One of my favorite activities when I was an engineer was to participate in the annual National Engineers Week. During that week in that program, many of my colleagues and I would visit schools where we handed out free toys and talked about what it was like to be an engineer. One friend that I had that used to love to go to this program also wanted to talk to the younger kids. He liked to talk about programming. And he would do a short demonstration that gave them some insight into the, the complications of writing a successful computer program. He would tell them that they had just been selected to be programmers for an important school project, making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch. And after setting out the bread, and the peanut butter, and the jelly on the table in front of the class, he told them that he was going to be the computer, kind of like a computer robot, and he would do exactly whatever they told them to do, since they were the programmers, just like a computer. They would typically start with shouting out, just put the peanut butter on the bread. So he would take the full jar of peanut butter and smash the, the bag of bread with the jar. And so there you go. I put the peanut butter on the bread. Of course, they would all yell out, no, no, no. First you open the bag of bread, then you take out one slice of bread, then you put the peanut butter on the bread. He said, of course. So he'd open the bag of bread and he'd pull out one slice, and then he'd take a full jar of peanut butter and smash it on the piece of bread. <laughs> of course, this would go on and on. As you might imagine, the kids got very excited, and then we all ended up with squash bread and gobs of peanut butter and jelly all over the table. But they had a lot of fun. And the kids learned a bit about writing computer code and how it required careful thought to ensure that the computer performed the necessary tasks that you wanted it to do. You had to be exactly specific with them. Now, although people aren't as simple-minded as a computer, we sometimes find ourselves trapped between what we're supposed to do because of the rules that we think are right and what we should do that makes more common sense. The laws written to, to govern our behavior have good intentions, but they also frequently have unintended consequences. They require new laws, and unfortunately come with other unintended consequences. So just how many federal laws are there? Just federal laws. According to a legal research specialist at the Library of Congress, this is a very common question. The Justice Department spent two years in the early 1980s trying to determine the total number of criminal laws. This effort, which went through 50 titles and 23,000 pages of federal law documents, they found roughly 3,000 criminal offenses which were individually identified. Clearly, legislating behavior can get very complicated. So it's no wonder that we find the example of Jesus challenging the religious leaders of his day to think more carefully rather than just simply blindly following the law. In our passage today, we read of a woman who suddenly appeared while Jesus was teaching in the synagogue on a Sabbath. This woman, who was crippled for 18 years, was unable to stand up straight. 
Unable to look directly ahead where she was going, she could only glimpse in front of her out of the corner of her eye. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. And when he laid his hands on her, she immediately stood up and began praising God. Now there's a couple of striking features to this story that are worth thinking about. First, nobody brought this woman to Jesus. And she didn't apparently come to Jesus herself asking for a healing. She was simply there. In most other stories we hear of Jesus healing people, people approached Jesus and asked for help, or they were brought to Jesus by their friends or companions. Secondly, Jesus didn't ask the woman if she wanted to be healed. He simply healed her. He had her brought to him and did what she, he thought needed to be done. Now, in contrast, for example, there's chapter 18 of the Gospel of Luke, which tells the story of a blind beggar who called out when he heard that Jesus was walking by, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and had the beggar brought forward. But then he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Just seeing that the beggar was blind didn't give him the assumption that he wanted to be healed of his sight. But that was what he wanted. When the man said, Lord, let me see again, Jesus replied, receive your, your sight. Your faith has saved you. And the man was able to see. So this brings up a third important feature to our story, to the healing woman. Jesus healed her, the bent over woman, not by, by touch rather, not than just by word. Scripture tells stories of Jesus healing people by saying a word and the, the healing just takes place. But in this healing story of the bent over woman, Jesus offers a cure, a rare cure, by personally touching her. Of course, the woman was elated by her healing and she stood up straight and praised God. And this particular healing provides an encouragement about how God works in the world and consequently how God expects us to work in the world. Just as Jesus noticed the ailing woman and responded to her need with a compassionate touch, God sees us in our most difficult moments and responds whether we realize we need Christ or not. God sees the hurt and the pains that we become accustomed to and responds with compassion even when we're oblivious to our own circumstances. In those times of life, when we're burdened with so much that we can't see more than a few feet in front of us, God calls us to Christ and offers us healing. Likewise, God expects us to look after each other and offer a compassionate touch or a hand when necessary. Although it's not helpful to insert ourselves into every difficult situation that we perceive someone is going through, there are times when it's obvious that we should offer assistance, whatever assistance that we can provide. Just as Christ discerned the needs of this woman, we are called to discern the needs of those around us and to act on them when we can. Now, fortunately, the leader of the synagogue was more concerned about the requirements of the Sabbath rather than the suffering woman. After Christ healed the woman, the synagogue leader complained that Jesus was breaking the rule of the Sabbath. 
rather than addressing Jesus directly, he's complaining to the crowd, saying, There are six days on which you ought to be work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, not on the Sabbath day. The synagogue leader was concerned that people weren't taking the Sabbath seriously and relinquishing their work as they're required to do, according to the book of Exodus in chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. It specifically says, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Jesus, on the other hand, was approaching the situation from a different standpoint from a standpoint of compassion as it was, that was expressed by a very similar version of the exact same law that was given in Deuteronomy, in chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, where it says, Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male or female slave, or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the resident alien in your town, so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Almost exactly the same words, but there are some differences. The rationale from the Exodus version of the law is based on resting since God rested on the seventh day. But the rationale from the Deuteronomy version of the law was based on the compassion of God for those who had been unfairly burdened while they were slaves in Egypt. Jesus understood the importance of keeping the Sabbath, but he prioritized the suffering of people over the obligations of strict adherence to the laws that required giving up work. Actually, everyone in the community at that time in the first century deferred to the rule of compassion at some point on the Sabbath. When they untied their animals and led them to water, they were doing work, but the animals had to have water. Jesus challenged them to think about how they were failing to offer this woman the same kind of compassion that they were willing to give their livestock. And he called them hypocrites. The leaders were shamed by Jesus' remarks, and the crowds marveled at what he was able to accomplish. It's important to note that while the synagogue leaders came to the wrong conclusion, they carried a relevant message to the people. The Sabbath is important and should be honored. Without any reminder of keeping the Sabbath, it can easily become ignored, as it often is today. So we need a way to discern, a proper way of a discerning action when we're confronted with this kind of dilemma. In the United Methodist Church, we use a process of discernment we call the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. 
In this process, we look at scripture, tradition, reason, and experience to help us figure out the right course of action for a given situation. We look at scripture passages that give us insight into how we should deal with a particular situation. And then we might look at how the church has traditionally handled that subject in the past, including the doctrine, resolutions, or church decisions that have been written down. It's also considered, uh, one of the things we consider is reason, to see if it's a course of action that makes rational sense. And finally, we reflect on the experiences that we've encountered or that others have encountered to help make us this decision. This is one of the ways that we navigate the dilemmas that we see when we're trying to make a decision in the church. Throughout any process that we use to navigate difficult decisions, prayer and guidance by the Holy Spirit are critical. Of course, if we had the mind of Christ, the answers would come quickly and we would have doubtless confidence in our decisions. But we must purposefully seek Christ's presence if we want to know how Christ would address the situation that we're in. One thing we can tell from today's passage is that compassion for those around us is a greater priority for Jesus than legalism. So I encourage you today to consider the motivations for what you do and how you go about your day. When confronted with a choice between condemning someone for doing something we consider wrong versus having compassion on someone who is suffering, err on the side of compassion. Remember the command that Jesus told his followers after instructing them in the Sermon on the Mount to love their enemies. He said, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are to follow in the ways of God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.